Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. In the news business, certain stories and certain pieces of audio attached to those stories can stay with you forever. Forty years after the death of John Lennon, this is what I hear in my head. The sound of fans singing outside the Dakota apartment building here in Manhattan in the hours after Lennon's senseless murder. I was a senior in college back then, living in western Pennsylvania, watching Monday night football. That's how I found out. Wayne Cabot, what do you remember? Tim, I went to bed early that night and woke up not knowing, and I put on WCBS 880, and I'm hearing Beatles music, thinking I had the wrong station on. Honestly, Tim, 40 years later, it affects me more now than it did then. I was 16. Born the week I want to hold your hand hit number one. They were with me all my life, and I guess I took John Lennon for granted. But I saw the profound reaction across generations. And 40 years later, I'm still seeing it. Only with new generations now. This week, on 880 In-Depth, I hand the reins over to Wayne Cabot to look back at the moment in time that the world came together in grief. And we remember a man whose music is a soundtrack for generations, including our own kids. Tim, I know your daughter Marley and your son Tucker play Beatles music on their guitar and their piano. My daughter on the ukulele. And at the age of 20, got her first tattoo and asked Dad to get the same message on our bicep, the words, in my life. I claim very little credit, though, for turning her on to the Beatles. It was actually my father, her grandfather who would take long car rides and play Beatles music. And then Amanda would tell me about it and actually turn me on to Beatles songs that I hadn't really listened to before. What was your first record? Our first reporter on the scene that night on December 8th, 1980, was Rich Lamb. The first record I ever bought was I Want to Hold Your Hand. So these were huge heroes of mine. Uh, and finally, when the tension broke and you were done with the story for that moment... It, it all came crashing home. Tears started flowing down my cheeks. I just, it suddenly all came crushing in, and I just thought, this is just horrible. Rich Lamb was first to get his name. We broke the news that it was Mark David Chapman who had killed John Lennon. Irene Cornell was first to see him. 
Reporters got their first glimpse of Mark David Chapman during his arraignment. He is a pudgy, round-faced man of 25 with the look of an overgrown choir boy, absolutely harmless. But to hear the DA tell it, it was a cold, calculated murder he committed. People asking questions Lost in confusion It was, it was a moment, it was a night that I'll never forget. Well, tell them Tom Kaminsky. I was a freshman at Montclair State University. Like so many people that night, Tom had Monday Night Football on, but heard the first report on a local break-in from Channel 7 Eyewitness News. The report was that uh, former Beatle John Lennon has been shot outside of the Dakota. And I just... I froze. I froze in front of the television when I heard this. Um... Tried to find something else on the ra- on the radio, flipping around on the television to other stations. Nobody had anything about it. Um, I then decided to go to WNEW. I put on WNEW FM, and it was uh, Vin Skelsa who was on. When I tuned in, I heard Jungle Land. I heard Bruce Springsteen's Jungle Land. The first words about the shooting happened just as they started playing Jungle Land, which is about seven, about seven and a half minutes long. And by the time the song had finished, they had gotten confirmation that John Lennon had, was, was dead. And I remember flipping back to Monday Night Football. Remember, this is just a football game. And hearing Howard Cosell saying... An unspeakable tragedy. Confirmed to us by Howard Cosell's grandson, Colin, is also in the sports business now as the Mets PA announcer. Colin knows what many of us did not, that his grandfather and John Lennon were actually friends. Going back six years earlier to a Monday Night Football game. Rune Arledge called up to the booth and had uh, two prospective guests, John Lennon and Governor Ronald Reagan of California. My grandfather said, referring to Frank Gifford, he said, He'll take the governor. I'll take the beetle. And then from then on, they became uh, instant friends and maintained that friendship up until 1980 um, when we you know, unfortunately lost John Lennon. So uh, they they had, you know, such a quirky relationship. You know, one was a beetle. The other was a, a lawyer turned broadcaster. And uh, for some reason, they absolutely clicked and really fed off of each other. So when the news struck that uh, John had been assassinated, Howard had the um, he, he took it upon himself to make the announcement. And I know that it was very, very hard for him. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City. The most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital dead on arrival when you hear the replay of that night and that announcement you wonder to yourself did howard cosell even have much of a knowledge of the impact that john lennon had on people and he was very professional uh very classy in the way that howard cosell gave us the news but he didn't let on that he had that connection no not at all and he delivered it uh you know very, very steadfast, you know, he did dead on arrival. And it, it really, I think, I think he knew what he was announcing was huge, um, bigger than the game that was on TV. That's for sure. And uh, I think he wanted to hammer it at home uh, all the while internally, 
morning, you know, uh, not just uh, as a fan of music, but as a, a fan of John's and a friend of his, um, you know, in the years after my grandfather had passed, we found a, a letter that John had sent to him, uh, thanking him for uh, the interview at halftime and signed it with the little John Lennon glasses and everything. And it's, uh, it was just an adorable, there's no other word for it, kind of an adorable friendship between the two. So, uh, you know, internally, I know Howard was really struggling, but uh, externally, he delivered it uh, forcefully because I think he knew this this was really big. Hard to go back to the game after that news flash, which in duty, found we have to take. You must know, you must talk to people of a certain age like mine. Everybody, it seems, was was watching that game. Everybody, it seems, heard the news from your grandfather. Do you get that from people? I do. And it is remarkable because there was nothing about that particular game that should have been a, a major draw other than it was Monday Night Football. And that became a kind of a, a, a major staple in Americana. But uh, it does seem like everyone happened to be watching that game and got the news that John Lennon had been assassinated and uh, learned it from my grandfather. So, uh, yeah, I, I never actually really considered it until you put it that way, but it's absolutely true. It seems every single person in America happened to be watching Monday Night Football that night. An unspeakable tragedy. Details on Nightline 30 minutes after the end of this contest. John Lennon was shot at a well-known New York apartment building, the Dakota House on West 72nd Street. And ABC's Rita Sands is standing by live at the Dakota now. It was Rita's first day on the job at ABC News. Previously in the 70s, she worked at WCBS News Radio 880, our station, and then would come back in the 80s to work afternoons there. But that day was Rita's first day on the job for ABC and her first day doing television. Settled in to um, my new New York City apartment. Uh, never imagined that a terrible page in history would be written that night, and I would be one of the observers. Rita, what, uh, what have you been able to learn since the shooting? Ted, what we know about the suspect at this time is, first of all, his identity, 25-year-old Mark David Chapman. He comes from Hawaii. Police tell me he's been in the New York area about a week and began to hang around the Dakota apartment over the weekend asking about John Lennon. He apparently ran into him for the first time this evening about 5 o'clock asking Lennon for his autograph. Lennon gave it to him on the uh, jacket cover of a, uh, of a record. Lennon went off to a recording session, and we are told that uh, Chapman uh, remained at the hotel until uh, Mr. Lennon returned about 11 o'clock this evening. Police officials um, describe what happened this way. They say that Chapman came up from behind, yelled out Mr. Lennon's name, and emptied a 38 revolver. There were at least five shots spent Lennon uh, shouted that, I know I've been shot. He stumbled up several steps into the Dakota and collapsed inside in an office area and was taken immediately to Roosevelt Hospital, where we are told he was dead on arrival. It took a little while for people to hear in the streets what had happened, and the sound of all of them rushing to the scene was unique. You would hear them in the brush. You would hear them crying, shouting angrily asking questions of reporters, where is the body, what's happened, do you have the one who did it? It became a cacophony of noise and questions. And we, of course, were there to find out. We didn't have many answers at that point. Motive, they don't have any yet. They're, they've charged him officially with murder, but the reason for this attack, unknown. Ted? Thank you, Rita Sands. 
And it was as moving and as upsetting to us as just about anybody. Most of the time, people don't think that reporters have a heart, but we do. And this was someone we grew up with as well, his sound, his music, that sometimes, for certain people, it helped to make sense out of difficult situations, the rhythm of music, the the creativity of it, uh, the uniqueness. You found a road in all that that would lead you to to stop and rest and think and find yourself again. WCBS reporter Rich Lamb, who, as we say later, was very profoundly affected by this, could not let those emotions take hold when the first reports came in and he had to jump into action. There was an ABC producer who was in the emergency room uh, injured in an accident, and, uh, and they brought John Lennon in, and he hobbled over to a payphone and called the newsroom and said that the doctors say that John Lennon has been brought in, he's shot, and he's DOA. So the ABC newsroom got it, and uh, as I now read uh, in retrospect, that word went all the way up to up the up the chain, and then they they sent it out to the Monday Night Football broadcast, and Howard Cosell broke the word. Yoko apparently had asked the hospital not to say anything, and but you know it was I think it was on Citywide too. Uh, somebody may have picked it up off a of police radio, but the the way that we heard about it was uh, on the Monday Night Football broadcast. We were at 51 West 52nd Street. I ran down to the mobile unit and, uh, and drove north, went up Central Park West, and as I passed the Dakota, people were already arriving and lighting candles. I mean, this is just, you know, minutes uh, after the word went out. I immediately drove down to Roosevelt Hospital. Rich Lamb is at Roosevelt Hospital, just arriving there now, and WCBS reporter Peter Becker is going to the Dakota. We'll have further information as it becomes available. It is 11.30. This is WCBS in New York, and back to Monday night. Just as I arrived, a Dr. Stephen Lynn came out and uh, told us that John Lennon had been shot four times in the chest, and he was DOA. He was dead on arrival. Extensive resuscitative efforts were made but in spite of transfusions and many procedures, he could not be resuscitated. Hmm. What was he shot, Doc, and how many times? He had multiple gunshot wounds in his chest, in his left arm, and in his back. Well, I immediately turned around, ran out to the street to where the car was parked, put the key in the, in the driver's side door, jumped in, and landed on a pile of broken glass in the three or four minutes that I'd been in the hospital, somebody had popped the passenger side window and ripped all of the two-way radio gear out of the car. So I had to make my way to a payphone uh, to call the bulletin in, and that's exactly what I did. After that, went over to the 2-0 precinct, and there, about three o'clock in the morning, uh, there was an inspector named Pete Prezioso with the NYPD. Pete signaled me and said, come on over here. And he said, go into the other room and take a look at a piece of paper on the table. And I said, what? He said, go into the other room and take a look at a piece of paper on the table. So I went to the other room, looked at the piece of paper, and there was written Mark David Chapman. And I came back out and I said to Pete, who's that? He said, who do you think it is? I said, the shooter? And he said, yeah. And I, and I said, well, where's he from? And he said, Hawaii. I said, Pete, come on. I said, this is going to be my job if you're not, he said, trust me. So I had to go outside down to the street to a payphone, and we broke the news that it was Mark David Chapman 
who had killed John Lennon. At that point, after we got some tape from the police, we went back to the radio station and we worked live all morning long uh, on that story. Police say Chapman emerged from a vestibule of the apartment building, assumed a combat stance, and emptied a 38 caliber revolver into Lennon. The ex-Beatle staggered up six steps into a guard area and collapsed face down on the floor. Chapman dropped the weapon, a Dakota employee kicked it away, and the suspect remained standing there until police arrived. One eyewitness said Chapman smirked as he was taken into custody. This is Rich Lamb. I remember distinctly uh, at about, I don't know, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning driving home. Now it was December 9th, 1980, very cold, a little snow in the air. And I remember going up the West Side Highway with that uh, broken window on the passenger side, blowing that freezing cold air into the car uh, and listening to the radio. And they were playing, So This Is Christmas. So this is Christmas. What have you done? Also working the story that night as a reporter from both Roosevelt Hospital and Central Park West, Jimmy Fink, then for WPLJ. Now he's at 107.1 The Peak, and he shared that night's memories with us. It was a very somber night in New York City, followed by days of radio stations playing nothing but Beatles, all culminating on Sunday of that week when there was 10 minutes of silence. I'll never forget eerie feeling of sitting in a radio studio and just being completely quiet and broadcasting silence for 10 minutes. We came out of that silence with the John Lennon song, Love, which starts very softly and slowly with John's piano just building up to the vocal of the song. It was a crazy night. It also happened to be radio personality Jim Kerr's birthday that day. We spent the entire next day just drinking and talking about John. The biggest Beatle fan I know does a radio show in Philadelphia at WMGK. It's on radio.com now. I would strongly suggest you listen to Breakfast with the Beatles with Andre Gardner, 7 to 9 Sunday mornings. At that time, Andre was in Florida. Got the news on Monday Night Football. Wanted more information. His girlfriend was at a radio station at the time where she worked, and he figured that was the place to be for news updates. And when we got there, I could see her in the back doorway of the radio station with tears running down her cheeks. And I'll never forget it. She looked at me and said, he's gone. And it was like getting punched in the stomach with a cannonball. We slowly walked into the studio, heard the teletype machine dinging every few seconds as it does when there's breaking news. And we stayed there all night long while she took phone calls and played John Lennon music all night while we were watching the teletype updates. I still had to be on the air at 6 a.m. and do my show. And I did, although I couldn't tell you what happened. It was a blur. I remember vaguely taking phone calls and playing his music all morning, but it was just such an incredible shock, such a horrific shock. Our life together is so precious together. John Lennon and Yoko Ono released their first album in five years two weeks ago. The once reclusive pair had also begun speaking to the press and there was talk of a tour. Talk that stopped abruptly when John Lennon was shot to death last night outside his New York City home. This is Peter Becker. Double Fantasy came out not even three weeks prior to, the, uh, to, to John Lennon's assassination. The rumor was that Lennon was going to do a free concert in Central Park. 
Uh, nothing had, had ever been confirmed about that, but that was the rumor. And I remember saying to my friend Jimmy, when he plays, we're going to go. I don't care what we have to do, but we're going to go. The sound system here at the Discomat in River Edge, New Jersey, is blaring nothing but John Lennon and the Beatles. 18-year-old Robert O'Brien of Maywood told me he punched a hole in the wall of his home when he heard that Lennon was dead. A man who bought the latest Lennon-Yoko Ono album said he had two teenagers at home, and he said it was as though they lost a member of the family. In River Edge, New Jersey, I'm Ben Farnsworth. Let's take a chance and the tune currently in release is optimistically titled, Just Like Starting Over. That record was number six on a national chart and climbing at the time of John Lennon's death last night. This is Peter Becker. The wreaths, flowers, candles, and hand-painted messages of grief on and around the Big Iron Gate to the place where John Lennon lived adds to the sense of the unreal that Lennon's mourners are talking about. They speak in hushed tones, some at times singing, others at times listening in silence to the non-stop musical tribute on portable radios dispersed throughout the crowd. And as the music filled the air, the tears flowed, and one was struck by the realization that the vigil was not only for Lennon, but for the mourners themselves, as the songs triggered memories of yet another bygone era. This is Steve Reed. Close your eyes. Have no fear. The monster's gone. Mark David Chapman um, decided to plead guilty. His attorneys wanted him to go to trial. Um, with an insanity defense, but he refused. He said he wanted to plead out. And he, uh, his first lawyer, who brought him to court very shortly after the murder, summed it all up, and he said, this guy is nutty as a fruitcake. Chapman seems confused, discombobulated, nutty as a fruitcake, he told reporters. The defense lawyer also revealed Chapman's psychiatric history, saying he's attempted suicide twice and has been institutionalized on several occasions. To top it all off, the defense lawyer said Chapman told him he's been a fan of the Beatles since he was 10 years old, that he liked John Lennon. This is Irene Cornell. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Mark David Chapman had been obsessed with two things, the J.D. Salinger novel, Catcher in the Rye, and John Lennon. And then Lennon said that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. And Chapman, who was a born-again Christian of some type, took offense and said he had a prayer group where he would talk about John Lennon and his blasphemy and they would they would sing imagine if John Lennon were dead playing on the Beatles song and Chapman started to fantasize about becoming famous doing something to really put him in the history books something that would mark him as an important person he would decided to kill John Lennon. He actually told people. He told his wife. She didn't do anything about it. They lived in Hawaii at the time. He said he was going to New York just to take some time to himself. He told his mother. She said, you aren't going to do anything funny, are you? And, and he said, oh, no, Mom, just going to get a little rest. He got a gun from a friend in Georgia, came to New York, and started staking out the Dakota. The day of the murder, this was in 1980, December, he uh, stood outside and early in the day actually shook hands with John Lennon's little son, who was five years old or something at the time, and said, what a beautiful boy. John Lennon had a song about a beautiful boy. He hung around till 
early evening when Lennon and his wife left to go to a recording studio, and he, he later said in his ninth attempt at parole that he regretted this one thing that he did, which was a ruse. He gave, handed Lennon the, the, an album called Double Fantasy and asked him to autograph it for him. And he said Lennon spoke to him and was very considerate, very patient and kind. And then he waited around till 10 o'clock at night and shot him when he came home. And he told the parole board, that was truly a sociopathic mind that I had. And so they have rejected his parole 11 times now, most recently this past year. Chapman had a hit list. Uh, he, had, he had a whole list of people he wanted to murder, like uh, David Bowie, Walter Cronkite, Johnny Carson, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Jackie Kennedy Onassis. But then he decided that Leonard would be the easiest to get to, and he wanted to be somebody. He wanted to be a celebrity himself, and so this is how he went about it. He got 20 years to life, and it looks like it's going to be life. No parole board is really interested in setting him free. Irene recalls the ninth parole board hearing a few years ago. Chapman said, that was the best parole board hearing ever, because he got to spout off about a lot of his thoughts and about Catcher in the Rye and how everybody should read this book and a lot to learn there. So... Nutty as a fruitcake. He has been an exemplary prisoner at a maximum security prison outside Buffalo, but the board says his good behavior cannot outweigh what he has done. At the most recent parole board hearing, Chapman said that he accepts his punishment willingly. I deserve the death penalty, he said. If you choose to leave me here for the rest of my life, I have no complaint whatsoever. His next appearance before the parole board will be in August of 2022. By then, he'll be 67 years old. Understanding all you see It's getting hard to be someone But it all works out It doesn't matter much to me Empty Real empty Disbelief, but Initially disbelief, but after you think about it for a few minutes You see that it's almost become a way of life in this country That uh, there's uh, no value for life anymore Asked if the killing is a reflection on violent times in New York City, the mayor replied. I don't think so, uh, considering the fact uh, that the person who uh, killed him came from Honolulu. And he, uh, because he was an international figure, he could be in any city, and a person who uh, is bent on uh, killing you uh, will follow you wherever uh, you are. The mayor said it seems that those who are criminals or crazy can always get guns. This is Irene Cornell. Let me end with a personal note. This was the song that I played over the high school PA system. Of course, I was doing the morning announcements. And I just randomly played this song at the end because I knew I should do some sort of tribute to John Lennon. And this was a song that I had heard on my radio that morning on WCBS News Radio playing Beatles records. That was my first sign that something was weird, that something had happened. Why are the Beatles on WCBS? And Lou Adler and Jim Donnelly and Rich Lamb and Irene Cornell and Stephen Reed and Peter Becker gave me the news that day. 
Later, walking down the Voorhees High School hallway a few periods later, I bumped into Mrs. Gillies, the Latin teacher. With her flowing dress and long red hair, she stopped, hugged me, and thanked me for playing that song as tears streamed down her face. This is a CBS News special report with correspondent Charles Osgood. The world is stunned because it is acknowledged that John Lennon was not just a celebrity. He was something more important than that. We all grew up in a generation where his music was paramount and that this kind of assassination was possible seemed unreal. And we searched first for confirmation because we couldn't believe it actually happened. Uh, Lou Timelot, who was a member of our team, uh, had been in Vietnam for quite some time, and he used to talk about the music, John Lennon's music, and how it kept him centered and calm. He was a pilot and wanted very much to be able to be relied upon and not as easily troubled as he was about the events of, of serving our country there. And when he heard this happen, he understood the connection, his connection and other military men to John Lennon's music and others of the similar background and, and taste in music and creativity. Uh, it, it kind of gave them uh, a sound of calm, a connection to calm that a lot of people didn't understand except those who were seeking it every day until they were reabsorbed into society and felt they could find a place again and not have to talk so much about a war every day. Clearly you understood at the moment it was a profound and big story and a heartbreaking story, but now it's 40 years later and Rita, we are still talking about it. Yes, I think we're searching for answers still. Wouldn't you say that that's the reason why? What's your guess on that? I think you just said it exactly as it is. We're searching for answers still. 880 In-Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. I'm Wayne Cabot. Happy Christmas. And maybe we'll catch up again in another 40 years. All-Star Closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.